0: Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have an amazing guest. Today is part two of a conversation that we started last week with Russell Gray, co-host of the Real Estate Guys radio show. It's such an amazing conversation. If you haven't listened to last week's show, you probably want to go listen to part one first before listening to today's show. You're going to learn a ton about the economy, about how real assets work. Definitely want to hear the words of wisdom from Russell Gray. Here we go. We're picking up the conversation where Russ is talking about the US dollar being the global reserve currency and what could happen if the US dollar loses that global reserve currency status.
1: Gold right now is at all time highs against every currency in the world except the dollar and it's flirting with it. The inverse of that statement is, is that currencies are at all time lows against money. And I think it's only going to get worse. And so if you're earning, have debt, if you denominate your net worth, if you think of things in terms of fiat currency, Canadian dollars or US dollars, but especially US dollars, and you're not ready for the impact of the US dollar, if the US dollar loses that reserve currency status, then you could get really, really wrong footed if that ends up happening.
0: Well, the one thing that's protecting the reserve currency status is the petrodollar. It was the deal that was stuck between Henry Kissinger and Saudi Arabia post the Al- the Arab oil embargo in the mid nineteen seventies, where they you know Henry Kissinger said, "If uh, you agree that OPEC will trade forever in dollars, then uh, it doesn't matter if Italy's buying oil from Nigeria. That's got to be transacted in U.S. dollars, even though the U.S. is not a party to the transaction. As long as that happens, the U.S." will protect the political and military and uh, sovereignty of the Saudi royal family forever. That was the deal. Right now, we're starting to see cracks in that. We're starting to see Russia and Saudi Arabia playing together. We're starting to see China and Saudi Arabia playing together. That could be destabilized. It's possible.
1: Yeah, it's more than possible. I mean, you saw the presentation of Future of Money and Wealth a couple of years ago. And in two thousand. Thirteen, I think, I did a presentation at the New Orleans Investment Conference called Real Asset Investing. In fact, I wrote a follow-up report. It's in our special reports library, and it chronicles. And here's what happened. We had the 2008 financial crisis, and the Fed's response was to print money. We had what then was the unprecedented giant Hank Paulson's bazooka, the $800 billion bailout, which, of course, looks like pocket change compared to what they're doing today, But that was the big thing, right? And he goes, hey, I don't, we're not going to use it. I just need to be authorized to use it. Sometimes just walking around the neighborhood with a bazooka is enough to keep things under control. That was Hank Paulson's, you know, who's the secretary of the treasury at the time. That was his whole thesis. Well, you've got, so China is sitting there holding gobs and gobs and gobs of U.S. treasuries denominated in U.S. dollars. So in 2009, they come over here and publicly chastise Barack Obama about the debt and about dollar policy. And of course, we went and printed tons of money. The balance sheet of the Fed went from $800 billion to $4.5 trillion. Uh, and that started with Bush and, and, and really built under Obama. And so China, the very next year, got in bed with Russia. Russia, at the time, and, and for a long, quite some time, has been, number one or number two, top oil producer in the world. That first oil crisis that we had that everybody said was the Saudis going after American shale oil. I think it was the oil cartel, and the United States was probably involved in it, weakening Russia. But Russians know how to be poor. They know how to suck it up. That's a tough country. And what they did is they, over time, ultimately divested themselves of all of their treasuries and passed... I believe China at least as far as the official count to number 4 position in terms of gold so they have a lot of gold relative to other countries you know if you buy into the united states official count you know we're still the top dog people who follow that uh, tend to think that china probably really is they're just not telling the truth but at any rate russia and china have been working together and over the last 7 years Um, No, 13 years, 10 years, (laughs) 10 years, sorry, 10 years have been um, more and more vociferous about leading the charge with bilateral trade agreements, the introduction of the Shanghai Gold Exchange as an alternative to the uh, LBMA, the Asian Infrastructure Bank as an alternative to the IMF and the World Bank, the, uh, what else did they do? China, the big deal was Navy, the US Navy, hey, you know, I heard um, Dennis Gartman speak one time and he goes, you know, the dollar is protected by 14 aircraft carriers, nobody else is even close okay but china has been working on that and you know when you think about the components of what it takes to be a dominant force and how the us was able to get into the position of taking the world's reserve currency away from britain and holding on to it and developing it they did it with the petrodollar which you mentioned and now there's the petro yuan and those contracts are not directly but through through a process are exchangeable for gold so there's the petro Petro Yuan, by having a bunch of gold, by having a uh, big manufacturing economy, by having a deep and rich bond market, and, and uh, China went into debt, uh, added $33 trillion to their debt from 2008 until now, and that was one of the big driving forces to pull the global economy out of recession. I don't know how many people know that. They started 2008, the recession, at $7 trillion in debt, China did, and they finished at 40 they added 33 trillion in debt and of course you know australia was a big beneficiary of that i don't know if we got any aussies on here but australian real estate went through the roof why because china just bought all kinds of commodities from them they went on that big building boom all kinds of suppliers from the united states made money selling things to china and so all of those components China had. And the things that they didn't have that the United States had, which was strong resources, strong agriculture, they went out in the world and bought or lent against. And that was the other thing that they did. They started making international loans denominated in yuan, which forced people, the same way legal tender laws force people to earn whatever the currency of taxation is, to be able to pay the tax. That's what gives the dollar in the United States demand Part of it is taxing. Part of it is there's so many U.S. dollar-denominated bonds out there. People have to go earn dollars to debt service. Part of it is oil. Well, China is just a giant copycat, and they looked at what the United States did, and they've been copying it. The one area there were weak is military and military tech. But guess who has that? Russia. So if Russia and China get together to take down the dollar, and they announced that they were going to do that and working on that in 2010 and i've got article after article after article for years chronicling it i'm not saying that's what's behind this you know i mean the 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 virus started in china that's probably just a coincidence but be that as it may that has been my concern way before there was a coronavirus way before there was a coronavirus it was that the united states was vulnerable to losing its reserve currency status and when that happens all of those excess dollars that the world is holding in reserves are no longer needed. It's like when a stock gets delisted on the S&P and all the fund managers go, oh, don't need that one anymore. Boom, right? And that means the falling dollar means rising prices. So it's probably going to be economic deflation because we've just had a heart attack and cash isn't flowing, so prices fall. Mostly asset prices because that's where all the inflation has been. and then. Hyperinflation, because we have disruptions of production, which means lower supply, people with lots of money, but nothing to buy, empty store shelves, bid goes up. I mean, so Americans just, I just don't think are ready. Now, I hope I'm I'm wrong. For for Joe Sixpack out there, who has no idea that any of this has happened, wouldn't recognize a piece of gold if it hit him in the forehead, right? I, I hope I'm wrong. But I've been watching this for 10 years, and I'm I'm pretty sure. Paper currency is going to begin to fail, and things that are real are going to be where you want to be. Precious metals, as far as savings, real estate, and productive income producing assets uh, in terms of investment.
0: So let's maybe talk a little bit about inflation. You touched on it. You touched on hyperinflation. We'll also talk in a moment about stagflation. But for a lot of folks, maybe believe that inflation is the rising of prices. That's not actually inflation. That's the symptom. Take us through the way inflation really works.
1: I mean, it's pretty simple. When you increase the bid, which is what giving everybody more money does, uh, in excess of the supply then the bid is going to drive up the price. I mean, anybody knows that. If I put a piece of property on the market and there's one bidder, I'm not going to get as good a price as if there's 100 bidders, right? And if we introduce debt, meaning we can pull dollars from the future into the present by either lowering interest rates or raising LTVs or lowering underwriting guidelines so more people can come to the party, I'm adding purchasing power in terms of dollar volume to the bid and prices go up. Well, it's the same thing. If you and I and ten, five other people or 10 other people, let's just use 10 people. <clears throat> if the 10 of us are you know, the economy and we're all dying of thirst and there's one water bottle and all of us have $1 each and we start the bid at a penny, but someone is really desperate to get a drink, ultimately the bid can go to a point and has to stop at a point, assuming we can't borrow from the future or pool our money. And that is a dollar because that's the most purchasing power any of us have. But if all of a sudden the printed magic printing press in the sky rains money or injects money directly into our bank account, like that would ever happen. Oh, wait. Um, so and then and then you end up with that money in your bank account. Now I've got a hundred dollars. And if we all have a hundred dollars, that same water bottle, that same 16 ounces of water, that same utility to quench. X amount of thirst, nothing has grown or improved in terms of the product, its utility, its quality. Nothing has changed in terms of its demand because we still have 10 thirsty people, but the capacity to pay has changed and that takes the bid up. So that's a very simplistic understanding of inflation. That's based on the quantity theory of money. What what changes it in the real world is the Fed is able to suck that money out of the system. The governments are able to suck the money out of the system with taxation, they're able to put it into you know, bank reserves with the Fed. They're able to spend it or send it overseas, or they're, they're able to suck the, the, it off, or they're able to move it from one group of people to another group of people. But ultimately, the people that it hurts the most, and this is where I totally agree with the Main Street people who decry the 1%, as much as I you know, strive to be in the one-tenth of 1%. It's not people like you and me that they're talking about. They think they are. The people who are really doing it make them think it's us. Or we need to tax them. But the people who are really paying the freight are all the people that are out there trying to, trying to pay for their health insurance and pay for their gasoline and pay for their clothes and their food. And when uh, you can't siphon off key components of cost, which are primarily labor, energy, and interest expense. Right, We can't take interest expense down any further than we can. Energy is already so far down. Victor, you old enough to remember Looney Tunes? Remember Looney Tunes? Okay. Do so you, you remember uh, Yosemite Sam, big, big handlebar mustache? And so there's this one Looney Tunes episode where Yosemite Sam is chasing Bugs Bunny and there's, it's me- medieval England and, and, and Bugs Bunny escapes into a castle you know, runs up the, runs up the drawbridge, gets in the castle, pulls the drawbridge up and Yosemite Sam is standing there where the drawbridge comes down yelling, lower that bridge, lower that bridge. Right. And so, and so Bugs Bunny lowers the bridge, bam, flattens Yosemite Sam, raise it up again, raise it up again. Right. Remember Donald Trump, lower those oil prices, lower those oil prices. Now it's even raise them up again, raise them up again. Right. See, because the problem is, is when oil is too cheap, A, people can't produce, but nobody's concerned about production right now. So if we're not concerned about production and oil is a key input that drives inflation down and enriches everybody, it makes you richer. If I can produce more for less, if I can travel further for less, if I can uh, fly my planes and do all my shipping for less and energy being my biggest component and petroleum being the biggest component of things like fertilizer and the cost of going into food production on and on and on, right? If I can do all that for less, how is that bad? Well, it's bad for the same reason it was bad in the depression and they were ruining perfectly good food even though people were starving and Franklin Roosevelt was hell-bent on raising prices. Why? Because people could service their debt. It was debt. We need high energy prices because there's billions, probably trillions of dollars of debt in the oil sector. And if those bonds go bad, it always goes back to the banker's the bonds, and the financial system, the credit markets. Now, I learned that after 2008. When credit markets fail in a credit-based economy, like Richard Duncan, who wrote uh, The Dollar Crisis, he says our system isn't capitalism, it's creditism. It's everything's credit. And if you go back to J.P. Morgan, when he testified before the Congress, the Senate, or whatever it was back in the day, and he said, and he's the guy that bailed out everybody in 1907, which led to the formation of the Federal Reserve. He said, gold is money and nothing else. Everything else is credit. Well, gold isn't money in our system today. So guess what?
0: It's all credit. Today's show was part two of a conversation I had with Russell Gray, and you're going to be able to hear part three next week. I love my conversations with Russ. He's full of so much wisdom. If you haven't tuned into the Real Estate Guys radio program, you definitely want to check them out. They're at realestateguysradio.com. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.